AFIDS brings you this broadcast from Wurundjeri country and we acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to First Nations elders past, present and emerging. AFIDS, listen. Hi, I'm Eugenia. Hi, I'm Mish. Hi, I'm Lara. And you're listening to Aphids Listens, an alternative archive where artists share a work they've made and a work that they've loved. So, Mish, you've been in Sydney, you lucky ducky. Yes, I managed to get over the border just as it was closed and then get back just after it opened. Border run. Yes, yes, in these crazy times, who would have thought that it was (laughs) such a foreign land? In New South Wales. Yeah, I haven't been to New South Wales in over 12 months. Mm. I'm feeling the, I'm feeling the draw. I definitely spent a lot of time at the beach. Okay, okay. You can yeah. see how tanned. Enough of that. I'm so tanned. Enough of that. Buffed. I think we're just we're like tanned from our computer screens, aren't we, Lara? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a lot of <laughs> studio time. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do in Sydney? Tell us. Well, I got to meet up with Harriet Gillies, the performance maker and artist. Fantastic, how's she going? She's very well, she's very well. She's been, she's also been spending a lot of time at the beach actually, even for a Sydney cider. And wasn't she making something for Sydney Festival? Yes, she did a work online for Sydney Festival. Um, and yeah, she's been making lots of really interesting work in relation to a kind of new dramaturgy or looking at like internet or um, online dramaturgies and how they can be appropriated or borrowed for theatrical contexts. Yeah, I first came across Harriet's work in 2018 in Melbourne. Uh, I saw her work, um, Lifestyle of the Richard and Family, that was in Next Wave 2018. Oh, was that like written by a computer or something? Yeah, I think it was a bot. A bot. There was definitely a lot of bot situations, but live performers. What's the difference between a bot and a computer? Mm, I think the computer is, I mean, this is definitely showing uh, my lack of fluency to be asked that question Well, uh, a computer still needs to be powered by someone, but a bot is like kind of auto-generating. Yeah, a bot is like an Instagram, like a fake account or like a alt, but a computer is just a computer, like a laptop. Thanks, guys. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. What? <laughs> testing your technology. All right. Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to hear what else she's been up to and I look forward to listening. Me too. Hello and welcome to Aphids Listens. This is Mish and I am with Harriet in her apartment in Sydney, in Darlinghurst. Yes. Uh, We're surrounded by boxes because she's moving out in a few days. I am. And I think I first came across your work, the first thing I actually saw of yours was in Next Wave and it was the performance. Um, So it was funny to see something in Melbourne. It was um, really interesting for me. I think it was the first time that I saw something which I would describe as like post-internet art, but through the frame of live performance. And I've seen that a lot in um, institutional work, gallery work, but it really felt like it was playing with the kind of languages and codes and modalities of the internet in a live theatrical uh, form. So I was like super excited to see how those different languages were talking to each other. Oh, sick. I remember that you came up to me at one of the events afterwards and you were like, oh, I saw your show, it was really good. And I was absolutely starstruck by you because you were a few years ahead of me and we looked up to you guys so hardcore. And I just remember being quite rude 
because I was like, okay, and just like walked away because I was like, I don't know how to talk. I don't know how to talk to you. Oh, that is funny, but um, isn't that sweet? <laughs> that is very sweet. That yeah. endears me to you endlessly. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, okay, so I'd, I'd like to ask you about an artwork that you've experienced. If you could talk me through what I would have experienced if I was with you. Yeah, cool. Um, so the artwork that I think about a lot, um, it's a, probably the last time I've really been like totally shocked by something or totally like just a whole fresh thing was a video artwork called Liminals by Jeremy Shaw. And I saw it at a gallery in Montreal, actually, in the Museum Museum d'Art Contemporaire in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in, it's quite a grand entrance into the building. And then you go down these funny steps that are like a funny height. And so you kind of like walk a bit weirdly because um, they're, they're quite short, and but they're quite long. So you can't take them two at a time. You have to walk like one at a time, <laughs> but only a little bit down each step. And it was this really, it was just around a corner in a very nondescript room. And it had like crappy gray charcoal carpet and it looked like a bad meeting room. There was a few like meeting room chairs facing a screen that wasn't very big. It wasn't like, it wasn't very, um, it wasn't a very cinematic display and maybe it was on purpose. And, um, so I sat down in one of these chairs or we would be sitting down in one of these chairs and it's a black and white, it's a black and white film that's filmed. It looks like on first glance to be historic footage or like retro footage maybe filmed in the 70s like 60s and 70s of this group of people doing what kind of looks like yoga mixed with dance and stuff Mm -hmm. and there's subtitles they're speaking in another language which turns out to be this made-up language this kind of pigeon tongue made-up language that they made up for the artwork you start to discover that they're actually a group of people from the future and they're practicing a bunch of old school rituals to try and connect their to try and connect to some space using AI technology and and retro rituals to connect into a place that's between the virtu- the digital and the real mm-hmm. or like IRL and URL mm-hmm. you listen to the they're kind of like a cult almost or like a mm-hmm. like a group of people and oh I should have mentioned that the world's over they know that extinction is inevitable at this point and mm-hmm. so they're trying to use hardcore technology and ancient ritualistic behaviors to connect their brains into this m- brain space between IRL and URL mm-hmm. and they talk to that there's like interviews interdispersed with videos of them doing yoga or dancing and then it moves into a kind of really nice arty bit where there are some prettier rituals where there's like a disco globe and they're all like staring at the disco ball and bits where they're kind of um the light starts to flicker and this beautiful score starts to come in and then it just moves into this ritualistic dance feeling and you're like this is awesome and it's like really swelly music and they're all getting really into it and um it's all black and white footage so it's like kind of flashing on your eyes in kind of a ritualistic way too Mm -hmm. out of nowhere it stops and starts to data mosh do you know what data moshing is it's where the pixel so it's a really digital thing and it's really because it looks all up until this point to be eight mil like old school film photography uh film video but then it 
data moshing is where it freezes the pixels on the screen from the last image and then the new image moves into it. So any movement in the new image drags the old image pixel through it. So if, if it was, if we data moshed a video of the sky yep. and then data moshed a person coming through it and uh, maybe putting their hand forward like a high five, yep. you'd only see, the only pixels that would move in the frame would be the hand moving. Uh -huh. So you'd see sky all around and then the pixels of the hand are the only pixels in the frame that are moving so that that would manipulate the image mm. and so it kind of looks like glitchy it kind of looks like when tech fucks up mm. like pixels dragging or like mm. warping mm. and it moves into like 10 minutes of pretty hardcore psychedelic really bright colored data moshing of these people dancing in full technicolor and it just felt like an acid trip and afterwards I watched it like four more times in a row and then I went back two more times to watch it again because I just was like blown away by it. Is it shot at the, when it's uh, the people talking, is it shot like a film or is it shot like a documentary or like, are they yeah, aware of the camera? Both. There's shots where it just looks like um, they're filming them doing their thing and then there are straight uh, um, camera addresses where they're kind of being interviewed. Mm -hmm. So it looks like a documentary and the, the reason I'm really obsessed with the artwork is it's part of this group of, well, like this genre of works that I really like called parafictions oh, or, um, yeah. or kind of uh, similar to like the literary style of um, fictocriticism mm. where it blurs the line between what is real and what is fiction in a really beautiful way but, but also by making the artwork it is becoming a real thing, do you know? Yeah, so it all looked very and appeared very real. Mm -hmm. Not, it wasn't quite fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I'm really interested in at the moment, this like line this d d line that we've uh, that that western civilization is really obsessed with dividing things but into fiction and non-fiction mm, which is a kind of false construct yeah. or a false binary yeah one of my younger friends says to me that url versus irl is um like really uh, old-fashioned like yeah. it really ages me whenever i say that she says because i actually her friends they say a f key so it's like real life is also online, yeah. but like away from keyboards is like another place. So it's, you're either like at your keyboard in the real world, which is both, both virtual and I don't know, lived, embodied and Corporeal, or yeah. you're away from the keyboards, which is, that's a different reality. Oh, that's the new thing. Uh, well, I mean, near the keyboard and away from the keyboard. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like that. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Totally. Totally. When you said that you think about it all the time, like you, you said that you saw it like four times in that visit and then it stayed with you. Mm. What is it do you think that stays with you about the work? Is it, yeah. I think the intention, this spiritual intention to find the place between IRL and URL as this like spiritual mecca was really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And I think because of my practice has a lot to do with did uh, internet culture or digital culture yeah the spirituality of that gesture was really profound to me mm -hmm. and also how audacious it was in just kind of making shit up mm. like being just just lying well not lying that's the thing just being like this is now a documentary and it, yeah very much like out of a gallery context if you found that you would just think it was a documentary and mm. this idea that we can kind of write our own realities into the world can you 
explain to me why it's audacious to have a spirituality. Oh, the audacious, the, uh, I meant the audacity is um, more in the, in the form, this idea of creating this thing that appears to be fact when it's fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first work that I ever saw that showed me that was possible. And since then I've done a lot of reading and there are lots of other artworks uh, and artists who do that really beautifully. Mm. It reminds me of like Barbara Cleveland. I was about to say Barbara Cleveland yeah. was one. And I remember being at Carriage Works watching Barbara Cleveland being like, I don't think Barbara Cleveland's real. Yeah. And then being like, wait, how would I know? Yeah. And um, yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, it was kind of the key that like the key I needed to open a door into a whole new thing that creatively I think is really important and also creatively that like not even creatively politically I think we're we're, we're in the throes of grappling with at the moment in in a really kind of global political world too like this idea of truth and post-truth and story and perspective yeah I think so those I guess, battles have been going on for a long time though like yeah it's at once very contemporary and also endless yeah you know, totally. like that kind of idea of who writes history who who has control over narrative those questions are ongoing yeah for, have been for a long time yeah and I think maybe it's western civilization's turn to have that kind of crumb oh maybe yeah I think western civilization is built on this concept of truth and empirical truth and there being a way to prove that and I think that's crumbling yeah, I read, I read somewhere that we're sort of like turning back in time. Like there was this idea of a rise of truth that happened around like the Enlightenment and like those kind of ideas of science becoming more mainstreamed and then journalism becoming uh, institutionalised in a particular set of ways, whereas like information used to spread like by a bunch of sort of snake oils people you know, handing out pamphlets or, yeah. or speaking to each other or different types of oral histories were much more common. But then in the Western timeline now, it's like basically we are back to the point of like QAnon being these like traveling salespeople, but on Handing the internet. Handing out pamphlets. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> like meme pamphlets. Meme pamphlets. Yeah. And can you talk about how that project connects to different areas of research in your work? Or maybe not research, but just different things you're interested in? Totally. No, I research. I'm, I'm very research heavy. I love researching. I suppose something I'm interested in oh something I'm interested in is the the role that stories have played in non-western like uh oh I'm interested in how western culture has framed made this distinction between fiction and non-fiction stories and the different ways that they shape collective thought and collective action mm -hmm. this is something new I'm thinking about I don't think it's necessarily present in any of the any of the shows I've worked on up until now but I think that's definitely where I'm heading and I think um, the internet and memes are, meme culture is a really interesting example of that line kind of blurring. And I was talking to my friend the other day and we were talking about the Bernie memes, you know how um, Bernie at the inauguration and, the, and how just like, just this absolute proliferation of, of memes around yeah. this guy sitting in a chair. Yeah. And I've seen some absolutely exceptional ones. Absolutely. And it's amazing, like hundreds of really exceptional ones. It's amazing the role of the artist as well and like the cultural producer in memes too. 
Mm. And we were talking about how memes are kind of like watching a meme go viral is kind of like watching a shooting star. Like you're watching it die Mm. in this really like magnificent, like proliferation. Like it kind of like the shape or like the culture of a meme is it kind of explodes and it has this like magnificent explosion and then it's dead or like gone even. Yeah. And um, it just like shits into digital space. Yeah. Especially like you, it, there's like layers of death. Like you'll eventually hear like, I think cause I saw my mum last week and she was like, Oh, did you see? And I was like, once my mum has seen the Bernie Sanders, it's like she lives in a planet further away yeah, from the yeah. star than I do. So exactly. I'm like, wow, my mum has seen it. So it's really that dead That was a now. bright star. That was a bright <laughs> dead star. I even saw one that was like a, a resting, it was like, it was like a meme that was joking about, it was like a resting eye space. This space has, is not a Bernie Sanders meme. And I was like, oh, that's, that is, yeah, nice. that's a real sign. I saw um, a new one that I saw yesterday that I really liked was the Janet Jackson album <laughs> with, um, with the missions holding her tits. Uh, yeah. I thought that was fantastic. That's funny. But also how meme culture as well is this new uh, form of literacy as well. Mm. Like it's actually a new kind of storytelling and mm. it's a new image-based relational kind of thing that you watch fracture as well like you see the little like for instance the Kath and Kim one the cat Bernie Sanders sitting next to Kath having a diary in the backyard mm-hmm. is so specific to our culture and it's amazing how you can see this one image starting to exist in different spaces in the way that stories kind of warp and twist into different spaces mm-hmm. and how like culturally significant that can become mm-hmm. and so with your work like you grew up with the internet, do you place your art lineage, like would you say you come from a lineage of the internet or do you come from a lineage of performance makers or are those things one and the same? Like how do you think of the kind of lineage of your practice? Yeah, that's it. Re- yeah. Um, I just did a show with um, Griffin Theatre Company and Declan, who's the new artistic director at Griffin, kept on being really shocked and appalled at how analog I am as a person like I don't I have a diary I have a paper diary I don't know a lot of memes anymore like for someone who makes a lot of art about the internet I'm actually really daggy and really analog and pretty like more like my grandma than I am like a millennial half the time so I think that but I think I am very interested in how digital culture has shaped our psychology and that bit, I think, is the bit that comes into my shows. And that's the bit that I think people feel is very internet-y. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the change, the kind of technological shift in, in psychology and how it's actually shaped our thinking, shaped humans' thinking of them, it shaped our notions of self and shaped the way that we relate to the world around us. I'm just as fascinated watching that in my peers and in younger people than, uh, or almost more interested in watching others than I am in doing it myself. Like, I'm not someone who sits on Reddit and, like, um, you know, scrolls and knows the things that are happening. Mm. Um, well, so those I think, changes happen really fast now as well. Like, I think, yeah, people who are 30, people who are 28, people mm. who are 26, like, those, because of the speed of those internet fractures, I suppose, a little bit like what you were talking about before, yeah, those jumps, those psychological shifts between platforms and how we use them and that can happen quite quickly 
compared to how it might happen historically, I think. Oh, shit, yeah, like exponentially. So I remember being at uni in first year. Like, I didn't have Facebook until uni, and then I joined, like, the drama society, you know, at my uni, and they were like, we do everything on Facebook. So I was like, great, I'll get Facebook. And there was a chick I went to uni with, and she used to – she would take photos of herself, upload them to Facebook, and then tag herself in them on Facebook. And I remember being like – the steps of narcissism, the like, the the absolute vanity you have to have to take a photo of yourself, put it on the internet yourself, and then tag yourself in it so everyone can see that you're in this photo that you've taken of yourself. Like I remember being blown away by that when I was like 18, and I'm like, that was like, you know, I'm 31. That was not that long ago, and now that's just like, you'd be crazy not to. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big shift, a quick shift. But I think, so yeah, I think I'm, I so come sorry, at things yeah, from yeah. performance, but yeah. I have this different dramaturgy maybe to others, and I'm not interested in linearity and I'm not interested in um, narrative because it's not true of my version of reality. My version of reality is one that's entirely relational and entirely fragmented and entirely um, kind of rhizomatic, you know, or like um, non-linear. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, the internet is obviously a huge part mm-hmm. of why my version of reality is like that. Mm-hmm. But also I think narrative is very patriarchal and very um, enlightened and, and moralistic, you know. So I think there are other things that inform it, but yeah, the internet mm. is one that mm. is pretty accessible. And how do you find that when that sort of networked internet dramaturgy is encountered by theatre or theatre people, maybe theatre dramaturgy. Yeah, how, how, does that, how is that met? Or how does it feel when those two things clash, I guess, that you are taking a different um, tool into an old shed or something? Yeah, yeah. I think the expectations, I think you can play into expectations in a mainstream theatre crowd and shake it up in ways, in some ways that are really exciting and entertaining for people, but then there are other things that, are, that people like resist a lot. I think one of the things that people resist a lot is protagonism. Like, I think a lot of work I try and do removes protagonism, and that's something that people don't like. Some people are like, I don't like that. If I can't find the person that I connect to and follow their journey, their story, I'm mm. not I'm not interested in the idea. Mm. So that's one where I feel like a really big like red light. Mm. But then other things like just being a bit more absurd or not not having to find like dramatic justifications for everything can be quite liberating for audiences Mm. not not everything tying up in a neat bow Mm. maybe that's a good time to ask you to explain a project of yours in detail sort of like from the conception how you made it and then how it existed in the world yes sick i thought i'd talk about the show that i made last year called the power of the holy spirit oh year before last now Mm mm-hmm which was my first attempt at making a solo show. Mm-hmm. I had I was in an art partnership for nine years, and when we broke up, I found it very hard. I found it kind of it was like ending a like a long term relationship. Well, it was the end of a long term relationship. Mm. It was kind of like getting divorced. We had like we did taxes together. We had an ABN together. We had a, a real like an office with stuff in it. I decided that I'd. Um, you know, in typical like breakup style, I was like, I don't need anyone. I'm going to make a solo show where like I just rely on myself. So that was probably the impetus for starting it. 
Mm-hmm. And the thing that I first, the, the first seed of the creative idea was um, actually kind of internet related. When you Google my name on the internet, there's a book that a Harriet Gillies wrote on the internet called The Power of the Holy Spirit that she co-wrote with her husband, George Gillies. And George Gillies is the name of my little brother. So it's really funny because sometimes people are like, did you and George write like a book about Jesus? And I'm like, no, no, I didn't. Um, So I decided that that would be the stimulus for the show. And I bought a copy of the book off like Amazon or whatever. That was pretty much all I had before I submitted an application to Brand X. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, if someone's not from Sydney, what Brand X is? Oh, yeah, that's like a little... uh, They're an exceptional company that have spent years going into commercial spaces and trying to find space inside them for artists um, to do things. So they ran Queen Street Studios in that big building on in Broadway in the city yeah. um, because it was going to get pulled down in like five years and turned into apartments. But there was like five years where it was a sitting dormant. So James Winter, who runs Brand X, was like, why don't we turn this into artist residencies? And so they've done stuff, stuff there. They've done stuff. They've got a commercial building out in St. Leonard's. And now they've just uh, recently, in the last couple of years, got the tender to manage the East Sydney Community Arts Centre, which is a new shiny building that the council, that City of Sydney uh, built, where the old Heffron Hall was, which was a beautiful, very um, important queer space in Darlinghurst. So now it's a shiny new one and has a COVID clinic downstairs. Uh, and, a, and a room upstairs that they turn into a theatre and they give you two nights to put on a show. You've got to bump in and out because um, there's dance classes or whatever in the days. So it's got to be something that's pretty, like, e- easily movable, pretty tourable. They give you cash too. Um, it's called The Flying Nun, the, pro- the theatre program that they run. And so I got into that and that forced me to make the show more, which was really good because I don't really work um, well without deadlines or without, like... And the deadline's got to be a real deadline. It can't be like, okay, well, let's meet up in a month and I'll talk to you about it. Cause <laughs> it's got to be like the, the people are watching you fail if you don't get something together. Yeah. So I had the book and then I had this story as well about... I had been making Lifestyle of Rich and Family, the show that you, you uh, were talking about earlier. And I'd come into rehearsals one day with this hilarious story, which was that I was staying at my mum's house because I was about to move to Montreal. And... I was having sex with my partner at the time and I was like, oh, I'm going to come, I'm going to come. And as that was happening, my mum's Jack Russell scratched open the door <laughs> to my room and ran up in and onto the bed and licked my mouth. You know how dogs just go straight for your mouth? Oh, my God. And so I'm, like, in the throes of an orgasm and the dog licked my mouth and I didn't – I was face down, so I didn't see it all happen. And so I thought it was, like, my partner's mouth. And so, like, I was into it and then I opened my eyes and realised it was the dog and was like, whoa, what's going on? And I, it all happened in, like, a second. Yeah. That's so good. And confusing. Yeah, and confusing. But I'd gone into rehearsal the next day and been like, lol, guys, how funny is this? And everyone was like, yeah, cool. And I'd totally forgotten about it. And then I saw Megan Holloway, one of the one of the cast members, uh, like six months later or a year later, and she was like, hey, remember that amazing story you told us about how you accidentally fucked your mum's dog? And I was like, oh, shit, I totally had forgotten that. And then it was really funny that I'd forgotten, and I just, like, it was this big, interesting thing, and I was like, yeah, that was actually really interesting. There's something in that. And so it kind of became a show about this book and this story about fucking my mum's dog. Those, the control, or, like, yeah, something about control and the control that we have over our lives. Hmm. Or whatever. 
And then I just mind mapped around the, those things for like uh, months. Mm. And then like I literally went, mind map on paper. Like yeah, sitting, in notebooks. Thinking about, okay, in notebooks. And ideas. just keywords. So to be like dogs, control, BDSM was in there for a little while. Yeah. Religion and pun- like punitive Christianity and this like shame and how that connects to the shame of BDSM and mm-hmm. being a dog and being obedient and subservient and all this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just something that was going to happen in, like, ten months. And every now and then when I felt anxious, like, I'd go into a coffee shop and write another mind map. Yeah. And it would just kind of kept, like, the mind maps would grow or fracture or change ever so slightly. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Germany and got this sick gig working as a tour manager and a production manager for this huge musician at this big festival in Hamburg. Mm Mm-hmm. I was surrounded by these, like, incredible... Like, the the show I worked on had, like, 45 queer musicians and performers, and it was, uh, like, a mecca of really inspiring artists. And I was in this, like, incredibly productive environment where there were, like, really creative people doing, like, exactly what I want to do, but with, like, 700,000 euro budget. It was really inspiring, but I was not being creative in any way, like, in this process. And I've never done that job before, but I turned into this, like, fucking, like like Aaron Sorkin like walking like with a folder like doing a spreadsheet and like giving her her breakfast without gluten and fucking walking around the corner and like patting the dog like it was just like I was just in this like high octane mode Mm -hmm. and I was sleeping like three hours a night and I was like I'd never had more energy it was just like go 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 I was gonna come back and the show was like the next week in Sydney and I pretty much hadn't done anything I went to a pet shop in in Hamburg and got a really nice dog collar like a nice German black leather dog collar and dog lead. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this will happen. As a costume possibility. Yes. Yeah. Or yep. like thing, maybe Something. object. I wasn't yep. sure how I'd use it yet. But yep. it did fit me. Just I checked that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I wasn't doing it at Brand X. I was doing it at Melbourne Fringe first. Okay. I did it at Brand X. But, but I had both of them. I was going to do it at Melbourne Fringe and then go to Brand X. Yeah. And then I was like, shit, I haven't really worked on this show. And we were in the middle of the tour for this big show that I was working for. And we were on a Ryanair flight between London and Aarhus. And I was like, this is my hour. This is like my hour to write the show. And so I sat down, it was like seven o'clock in the morning and I opened my laptop and I just like dumped, like it was just a word vomit of, of ideas and text and just and I kind of like started again half, it was this total stream of consciousness and I would start again and loop and didn't really know what to, you know, like whatever. And the plane landed and I closed the laptop type thing. Mm-hmm. And then I sent it to a friend, Mark Rogers, who's a playwright. And I was like, what's, what, what do you think? He's like, it's really good. I'm like, no, like I haven't even made it into a script yet. Like these, it's just a dump. He's like, no, it's good. It's good as it is. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. Um, so that was really good. And then I was just kind of like, okay, I'll just do that then. And um, another collaborator friend, Xanthi Dobby, I decided I'd give a lecture. Yep. And so I was like, can you make the PowerPoint for me for the lecture? Because they've got a, they've, they're an incredible PowerPoint maker. Yep. And Did internet. you already, were you friends or? Yes. We yep. had a very um, beautiful, complicated love affair slash collaborative. Like we kind of fell in like creative love when we met and then had a love affair that that maybe was the impetus for both of our marriages ending Mm. and um now we like collaborate and make art together and are good friends okay 
which is sick. Yeah. It was a very seismic moment in both in, in our lives. And I think, um, I don't think I'd ever met anyone who I felt so creatively soulmatey with. Amazing. Yeah. And we had this incredible Facebook messenger stream of us sending nudes and memes to each other. We want to make it into an artwork one day. It's just nudes and memes. Great. Great memes, great nudes. So they did the PowerPoint for the for the lecture and I decided that I wanted to do Nangs in the lecture to push this idea of control. Mm-hmm. Actually, I remember a show that you did, Everything I Know About the Global Financial Crisis in 35 Minutes or whatever. Mm-hmm. One and hour. In one hour. And I remember you guys like, actually, I'm like, actually, they're pretty drunk now. Mm. It's actually starting to impact on them. And I was like, what can I do that would really make it hard for me to keep, keep doing it and actually show that I'm losing control of the situation or make make my control over the situation harder or the stakes of the control harder, higher or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do Nangs while I gave the lecture, and so I, uh, which was really cool. And then I got to Melbourne Fringe and I had a solid first half because I had a script that I could read off of on a lectern and I bought a box of Nangs. And, um, so then at this point you hadn't done any work in a studio? Like you had I'd just done been- one day in a studio where I'd kind of just walked around in circles yeah and then gone back to mind mapping yeah and then I think I did one session in a studio in Sydney before I went to Melbourne Mm -hmm. and I tried to figure out what the third half could be Mm -hmm. the third part I think I'm rather and then the second part was an idea that I'd had in a show that I made the year before or that earlier that year with two theatre makers Julia Croft who's from New Zealand who's an exceptional feminist performance feminist theater maker and joe louis who is a sick wa theater maker and we had this whole really complicated first act of the show that was going to happen and i was going to do this whole bit where i had a vr headset on and found this person and had sex with a person in vr like on stage but we cut the whole act and decided to just do a panel talk instead in the show like a fake panel and so i was like i still really want to do that vr thing so i that was part the second part of the show and I didn't really rehearse it. I just knew that I'd like get up and wander around and do really daggy clowning, like walking into walls because I got a VR headset on and like hitting my shins on shit. And then um, find this beautiful woman in VR land and have sex with her and just go to town on like really graphic sex acting, bad sex miming. Mm-hmm. And then the third bit, I just had no idea. Yeah, I tried to do one day of figuring it out. And then in, at Melbourne Fringe, like the first show that I did at Melbourne Fringe, the third bit was just like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. And kind of, kind of just act like a dog and see what happens. But by the end of Melbourne Fringe, I think I did a week in Trades Hall, mm-hmm. you know, in their like Melbourne Fringe hub or whatever. Yeah. I think I'd kind of really figured it out. But the first half was beco- the first half of the show or the first two parts of the show were becoming really tight. Mm-hmm. And then that was sick. And uh, I, I enrolled in the experimental category because the experimental category is the smallest category. So there's <laughs> the least amount of people that you're going up against to win an award. Mm-hmm. And I very fortunately won the best experimental award, which meant that a bunch of industry came and saw the show, which was really exciting. But otherwise, I didn't do any marketing and, like, often performed to, like, six people or, like, four people. And, like, it was a pretty hardcore show for them all. So I'm very grateful for that audience because they would have found it probably quite a lot. To watch, you know, when there's not very many people, you feel more pressure to, to have a response. It's very intimate. It's very intimate. And did you... Like being from Sydney and doing it in Melbourne, so you'd already worked in Melbourne a bit. Mm-hmm. Did you go 
with this Melbourne Fringe season as a kind of, I know, you know, comedians do it, I know, in Adelaide or Perth, they'll go with a, a draft of a show, but with the intention of working it out on the floor in front of the audience to see what works and what feels good. Did, was that part of your thing or were you just, yeah, is, is there a sense of like making through the season part of the practice? I guess I'm curious. Hugely, but I don't think it was the case that Melbourne was like the test audience and then Sydney was the real audience. Mm-hmm. Even though the show did get heaps better and changed and the Sydney show was better. But I think it's just that thing of like, I'm not going to make it unless someone's watching it. Mm. So, so that was, yeah, a low stakes because at Fringe, yeah, like, it does, you know, you're not losing any money and, yeah, four people will watch it, so that's fine. You mm. know, four people saw it and it was a bit average, it's okay. So I guess it was the low stakesness of, of that. Of the context. Yeah. Not the city. No, the city's great. I work more in Melbourne than I work in Sydney because they like experimentation a bit more. Or there's, like, a, there's less, uh, there's more post-drama and, like... I feel like audiences like that kind of stuff a bit more or have been exposed to that the kind of work I make a bit more than in Sydney. Mm, interesting. I think it's changing, though, in Sydney. I think it's getting heaps better. And then once you've done those, did you only perform that show in Melbourne and Sydney? Yes, I've performed it in Sydney twice now, but yeah. And do you have... Do you... Um, like, is, how important is touring or, like, how long is the kind of lifespan of a work? Well, I was really hoping to tour that one. I think it's really a nugget of a show. Uh Also, the big thing that happened between Melbourne and Sydney was like, uh, I was like, I think I need a human tail because the end of it, I become a dog and I eat my own shit um, that I cover in glitter. And act three is called like, you can't polish a turd, but you can cover it in glitter. And, um, (laughs) and I, yeah, this other part of the show happened. I forgot this random guy emailed a bunch of places I work being like, I'm looking for Harriet Gillies. Like he clearly Googled me because a, a, a package had showed up to his house addressed to Harriet Gillies. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's, if it's me and I've never lived at that address, but maybe just open it and see what it is. And it was a birthday card and a, and a box of chocolates from Auntie Marion and Uncle like Duck or something from the UK. And um, I have an Auntie Marion, so it just felt like it was a good fit for the show, this, like, kind of the different Harriet Gillies on the internet and um, how they're kind of a little bit connected to me, like, or, like, we find that we find other ways to connect to these people that that we have no connection to other than, like, an arbitrary name. And so I used the chocolate from the package and sculpt into shit and eat the shit. And so as a dog. And so in Melbourne, I was just kind of like rolling around in my underwear, just being a bit vague and dumb. And so that was like much more specific in the Sydney show. And I got Alexi Creasy, this prop maker, to make me a human tail that connected by a butt plug. And so I put that in on stage and, and it looked like I just had this like extension of a um, backbone coming out of my back. Awesome. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Mm. My first um, uh, prop mm. ever, which was really cool. Mm. First, as, as in, like, you commissioned that thing into yeah. existence. Yeah. Mm. And he was like, this would be a really expensive job usually, but this is, like, so freaky and weird that I'll just do it for cheap. I mean, it is a, a very niche item. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to tour it all around the world, and then um, there were a couple of possibilities, uh, and then COVID, and so it all just fell by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And now it's just a show that I can do at a moment's notice. And is that sort of, like, nimble thing the idea of a nimble production so you talked about it 
um, being part of the kind of um, brand X context, but I guess it's also very fringe. Yeah. Um, do you think you always work in that way or is it, does that matter to you? Is it part of your thinking? Like how does that manifest? I think it was definitely like a necessity for the, for my practice. Cause like the kind of work I make, is a bit left of field or not even left. It's not really, it's, there's a whole lineage of people making art like this, you know, like I'm not saying I'm special, but um, it's not like a main stage or like, yeah, the avenues for presenting it wouldn't ever really be in like an institutional context. So I think I learned very young that like I had to make it first and, and show, show people it and show audiences it in order for people to trust it. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, that necessity just came from being like, well, I've got to make something off my own bat and on my own dollar. So Mm -hmm. if the cheaper, the better, the smaller, the better, you know, Mm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I struggle to think with, with, um, or sometimes I think I struggle to think on scale and with, um, budget, but I think any opportunity I've had, I've proven that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how like, actually you can do the same show properly and it can cost so much more money, even though it's, even though it's the same show. Like I just did, um, this pleasure dome show at Sydney festival and we had a proper budget, but, but it went to paying people like, so everyone got paid properly. And there was like a couple of extra tech people who were really good support. And it just meant that, I wasn't in charge of bump out, which is great because I don't know the first thing about tech. Mm. And like, yeah, so kind of 30 grand or something just like went in an instant, even though the first time we did it, we did it for 300 bucks or something, do you know? Yeah, it's quite shocking how easy it is to spend a budget when you get one just by paying people properly. Yeah. Which of course is like really important and valuable, (laughs) but you just think, oh God, yeah, $30,000, how could I possibly spend $30,000? Yeah. And then you sit down and then it's just gone and then someone's like, oh, we can't really afford um, a taxi to get you from the matinee to that talk you have to do on the radio. Could you catch the train? Exactly. And you're like, oh, okay. I thought I was rich, but yeah. I guess I'm not. No. It goes <laughs> like that if we just pay ourselves a living wage. Yeah. Turns out. Turns out. And what are you, I guess that's thinking about scale and yeah, kind of like how the practicalities of life <laughs> force themselves onto your aesthetic. But I guess I'm curious going forward how those things might work or even just like well yeah what we ask the question what are you grappling with what's on your mind at the moment mm. you've just done a season so maybe you're exhausted but um <laughs> it doesn't have yeah in the recent thinking times what's been bugging you or inspiring you well looking forward i'm actually about to work on a quite a large scale project with lots of bits and pieces and lots of budget which is the first time that's ever happened exciting which is very exciting i'm collaborating with marcus mckenzie and we're 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 working on an idea that is just in its pitch phase but that is kind of ginormous in its kind of we've kind of set ourselves up to fail in like kind of on purpose I think and we've taken this kind of behemoth behemoth task and we've tried to do it um which will be a 24-hour theatrical spectacular with lots of moving parts and about like everything (laughs) so that's sick yeah i'm grappling with at a at a deeper level i'm grappling with how to feel creative in these in i just in these covid times i've taken to ocean swimming and that's been very soul enriching and all of the other stuff that i used to do like going to sea shows uh going to art reading reading essays like reading about ideas learning ideas 
is all just hasn't been happening for me and I am grappling with whether or not I'll still be able to make art or make good art Mm. anymore (laughs) yeah and I also see how privileged and um lucky I've been in the past to be able to travel so much and um be exposed to these new ideas and kind of live a pretty nomadic thrilling life like a bit hedonistic almost like going from thrill to thrill from show to show like festival to festival and always new people always new things and there was just always like a conveyor belt of interesting stuff like directly going into my mouth that I could just like I just had to chew and swallow you know Mm. and um I just feel like I lack the mental discipline to do all of that for myself but not in a way that like I feel like I'm just being lazy it's like this feeling that um it stopped mattering Mm. so that's pretty big and existential and every time I think about it too much I'm like oh just go for a swim that'll make you feel better and I do go for a swim and I do feel better Mm. and then I'm like okay I just want to be like a shag on a rock now Mm. and just be like a bird that goes for swims and sits on rocks and dries myself in a very audacious fashion yeah that's something I'm grappling with Mm. I think a lot of people are yeah I think like the arts in Australia performing arts internationally this is a very existential moment of like yeah how how to continue why to continue Mm. what is like how do you deal with the the once again like how will the practicalities influence people like the idea of space and theater and shared space and the fact that the communities have imploded because events aren't happening movement isn't happening and what does that mean for like yeah individuals and why why do we do it mm. it's very big these yeah. are like big questions and i think a huge part of that is um cuz so much of my practice I think if if someone else was to describe my practice, they'd always use words like maybe like technology or the internet or something. And this year that we've spent online, and I was already kind of feeling this before COVID, but COVID's definitely cemented how like deeply toxic and um, problematic so many online spaces are and so many online technologies that we use are like so, you know, designed to be so intentionally addictive and crippling in terms of like self-esteem and um, self-compassion. And I personally have struggled with those kind of things using technology through the year. Mm. It feels weird to kind of know that my practice is recognized for having that element to it, but I'm actually like, I actually think that element like is is a bit bad now. Or not bad. I don't think all technology is bad, but... um, But yeah, maybe lately you've been sitting with this kind of pernicious energy and yeah whether or not that means that you'll turn a corner in terms of like what you're talking about in your art or yeah it's like I think that that's the thing is there's this big gap for thinking at the moment Mm. and so everyone's in those yeah those moments of going actually the world has changed so much in the the last year I I hope that means that the art has changed the art will change and the art world will change yeah 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 when I'm feeling optimistic I'm like well this is great because there was a lot of stuff that I wanted to change for a long time yeah 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 (laughs) but when I'm feeling pessimistic I think oh it could take years to rebuild that not that I ever want to go back to that accelerated speed necessarily but just the regularity of 
I think you need some stuff to like chew in your mouth, mm. you know, artistically and socially and philosophically and spiritually, all that stuff. Totally. Yeah, it's a strange time. And I think, um, yeah, like just having done this show for Griffin and Sydney Festival, it was a digital theatre show. It was a great digital theatre show. But I'm like, I'd prefer to be at the beach. You know, like if I if I wouldn't go and see this show right now, I would go to the beach because that's better for, for, for me and f- yeah I don't know it's a funny feeling but one thing that one thing that does like uh, the other side of that or not the other side of it the thing that I've been thinking about in a positive way in the same line of inquiry is humor mm-hmm. I listened to a podcast recently about the kind of psychology of laughing and and that a lot of a, a, a humor is a really important role in making people comfortable with things and if people can laugh at something, it means that they can identify it. It means that they're identifying it and it means they're understanding it. And I think that more and more, I'm like, I think humor is going to be the most important thing moving ahead. Maybe not for everyone, but for, for I think I'm much more interested in humor playing a really important role in the, in the politics of the work and making people laugh might, might be more important than making people think. And not not in like an escapist like make them laugh, but like a <laughs> <laughs> but like a access point mm. to thinking about things. Aphids, listen. Yes, 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 yes.